0: I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. Little known fact about my guest today. He found out very quickly that house music clubs were a place where a Mormon kid could feel at home. Welcome, Cascade. AOK. okay a Hey, everyone. My guest today is Ryan Radden. He's the multi Grammy Awards singer, songwriter, producer, and remixer known as Cascade to his tens of millions of fans around the world. He has nine full length chart topping albums and has been voted America's best DJ multiple times. He has his own record label, Arcade, and curates Cascade Radio. He's on tour at least nine months of the year and he fills huge stadiums as quickly or quicker than bands like U2. He's a devoted father of three, he is a devout Mormon. He has been crowned the new face of electronic dance music, and I'm so happy to welcome Ryan Radden to the podcast. This That's, is really exciting.
1: Thank you. Thank you. This is exciting for me. Here we are in Manhattan. On the a beautiful... greatest city in the world. Yes. I love New York.
0: Have you seen Hamilton? I have not. Have you heard about it?
1: Oh, um, how could I? can't escape that. <laughs> <laughs> it's impossible. To... Yes, I've heard about it many times. Uh, did you I...
0: grow up listening to Broadway musicals at all?
1: I did. I did. Um, And I lived here for a very short stint. And when I lived here, I went to quite a few shows. And I've brought my kids here a couple of times and taken them to a few shows. Uh, I I love Broadway. And uh, unfortunately, this trip was very quick. It was only a few days. There wasn't a lot of downtime.
0: There wasn't a lot of Hamilton happening.
1: No, sadly. Not yet. Not yet. I'll be back.
0: We we will demand it. So where did you grow up?
1: A little town called Northbrook, uh, suburban Chicago, uh, northern suburbs of Chicago. A uh, beautiful place. I was born in Evanston Hospital, um, yeah, first 18 years of my life in Northbrook, Illinois.
0: And tell me a little bit about your family.
1: Uh, two older brothers, two younger sisters, so there was five of us.
0: Do they consider themselves musical?
1: No. The answer <laughs> would be no if you asked okay. each Again. one of them. No. I would say if we asked, if they were all in here in this room together. I wish they were. Oh, that would be a fun interview. That would be awesome.
0: (laughs) Let's do that next time.
1: If we were all in here, I would say, who's the most musical in the family? And they wouldn't answer me. I mean, they would now maybe because they feel like they'd have to in their interview or whatever. But um, (laughs) my youngest sister, Rebecca, was an amazing piano player. Kelly, the one right underneath me, she was a great piano player, too, and a great singer. And Rich, also another wonderful piano player. It's funny, because everybody was, like, really much more inclined to do music when they were kids, except for me. I was the guy who kicked and screamed, like, refused to practice. Everyone in my family, I think, it was required to take a couple years. I forget what the rule was. Uh, I was the guy who escaped that, didn't do it. I mean, I took drum lessons, I right? Took piano lessons. I I sang for years. I I really enjoyed singing, and I did a lot of that growing up. Yeah, I don't know. I was just the guy that didn't didn't like. I didn't like to practice
0: until you found the thing you were passionate about practicing. That's it.
1: That's it. I I think electronic music really spoke to me because it was more. I don't know. It wasn't necessarily about the instrument. The instrument was the computer, and that was fascinating to me. That spoke to like the inner geek in me, and I was like, okay. This I understand, this I, I get. And yeah, and I just, I was so interested. I was willing to spend any amount of time to make it work.
0: Were your parents musical?
1: Yeah, I mean, my my grandma was, uh, she's a poet. She was a, an amazing writer and she was always around and she was extremely creative. I think much of the creativity in my family stems from um evelyn uh my grandma she was she was always writing or making always making things sewing things and making clothes and she was just always making doing stuff, very busy and my dad was uh, a bit of a ham kind of an um, I mean, he was in he was in finance. My listen, I grew up in the Midwest. Everyone's yeah. like extremely conservative. My husband's from
0: Wisconsin, and okay. he's one of ten, and so I have a sense of a big Midwestern yeah. family.
1: You get it. I mean, I could probably hang out with you yes. all day long. Yes. I'm sure we share many of the same things. But um, yeah, very conservative family. He worked in finance. You know, going to the city every day and. You know, when I grew up saying, hey, I want to do music, it was kind of like, sure. You
0: know? That's adorable.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's wonderful. That's <laughs> right, but neat, what are you Brian. actually going to do? Yeah, and, you know, and I kind of had that attitude too. I was just like, music's a wonderful, you know, passionate hobby I have. And my wife and I still laugh about it to this day because she, after we got married, she would kind of press me every once in a while, like, well, what are you going to do? Type of thing. right? I was like, do you mean like work? Yeah. Just, you know, what, what are you trying to do with your life here? <laughs> I'm like, ah, good. I got you. You're already mm-hmm. committed to me. <laughs> the joke's on you. That's I right. Have no plan.
0: That's right. <laughs> you know, when you meet someone and you're dating, everything is adorable.
1: That's right. And then
0: you actually marry them. Like my husband is a mad Green Bay Packer fan. Right, like he's from Wisconsin. Maybe you couldn't be friends with him, but that's his thing, right? That was their religion, (laughs) aside from church, that was their religion. And so, when I first met him, and he played football, and he, you know, this was his thing, and he thinks he's on that team, by the way, (laughs) and he is not. And that's another conversation, by the way,
1: married a a, a person from Wisconsin. Yes, husband's from Wisconsin. Same thing, I know exactly. Is he allowed
0: at your family dinners or? Can he come for Thanksgiving? He is,
1: but it gets very heated. Sometimes it can get heated. That bears pack a rivalry. It's real. It's a real thing. It's
0: ancient. It's like wars have been fought. They're still being fought.
1: Yes, it's a real (laughs) thing. It can get
0: ugly. All of that is to say, I got to meet your incredible wife, Naomi, the other night, and she was so warm, and I thought, wow, she is constantly having to meet new people as part of what you do, which is have a very warm meet and greet with people before you perform often. And I thought, wow, she's meeting 70,000 people right now. And she's kind of got that presidential thing where she looks you in the eye and makes you feel like you're the only person in the room. It's kind of amazing.
1: She's amazing. I mean, honestly, that's my biggest kind of untold story that uh, that I don't get to talk about very much in the press because people are like, I want to know about you. And I'm like, "Ah, oh, well, you know, I'm this guy. I make music. People like it. I and go it caught shows. fire. Yeah. You know, and, and that, that's fun. But really, uh, the true hero in my story is Naomi. I, I mean, wanted
0: to have her on. You know, originally she was supposed to come with you, which is why there are snacks for 100 people out there. <laughs> so you're leaving with a lot of cookies and fruit. You know. My husband's an actor, and you know he goes on location for long stretches of time, and there's the idea of supporting each other, and then there's the yes. day-to-day where when he calls, and it's just not a great moment, and he wants to talk to the kids, and I'm trying to explain, like, we miss you, and we love you so much, but you're in Malta, yep. and we're in Brooklyn, and it's just really hard to bridge that gap yep. right now, so we can talk about that, but I thought it would be really interesting to have the two of you on at some point to kind of talk about the romantic version of things and then then
1: the the reality version version
0: of things. But what I was going to say is that when you were dating and maybe earlier in your marriage, when she would ask you like, what do you want to do? And you were like, I don't know. And then after a while, the fact that that remained um, something that she still loved about you, because now when the Green Bay Packers come on and football (laughs) season comes on, I wish maybe I wasn't married to Dominic, (laughs) yet it was the sexiest thing about him pre-children and pre-responsibility. So that was a long-winded way of saying, like, there's the idea of, like, the artist, and then there's, like, no, I'm really going to support you until it hits.
1: The reality. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think when we first met, it was never, hey, I want to do music. I'm going to do music. I was already doing music, and that was a part of who I am. But Because you wasn't... were in
0: college when you met or post-college? We're in college. Did you I go was... to school together?
1: We met. It was her first semester and my last semester.
0: So you grew up in Chicago. Yeah. And from my extensive research, because I've been living with you now for two weeks, and it's exciting oh, wow. for it to oh my leave gosh. my computer and actually yeah. be next to you for reals. I know a little bit about your story in terms of finding the club scene in Chicago yes, and sort of finding house music that way, and I thought it was really fascinating because I was at your concert two nights ago. So I was older than some of your fans. As am I. But I was in a room really loving every second of it, and yet... I didn't have a drink in my hand. I abstained from anything other than me and you in this room having an experience.
1: And you enjoyed it. And
0: I had a great time. And I know that you've talked about being young and being a Mormon and not partaking in things that the Mormons don't believe in
1: right. and
0: being next to people who were high and drunk and doing a lot of the things that people do at a club. Yes, um certainly. It's sometimes hard to hold on to your center at 15 years old.
1: Yeah. I mean, my dad, I can just kind of taking off from that. My dad would say, when I leave the house, you know, on Friday, Saturday night, whatever, remember who you are type of thing. That was always his,
0: you know, that was so his I left phrase.
1: And I was like, all right. I think dance music for me was a refuge. The nightclub was a place for me to kind of discover myself and what I believe and who I am, and uh, experience new and different things and be in the city where it was exciting. You know, I was taking the train in and listening to different music than I had ever heard and meeting different people and, you know, experiencing the city and everything around the nightclub culture. What were you like socially as a kid? I'm a little bit shy. I'm on the shyer side of things. Not very shy, I wouldn't call myself shy, but I'm, you know, I'm on the shyer side of the scale. And in high school, no, I didn't get along with people really. I was I was definitely an outsider. Um, you know, me and my kind of bands of nitwits, we were taking the train to the city and doing different things than what most kids in high school were doing. Most of the kids were like going to a Friday night football game and brr, getting drunk. So like, you weren't a jogger? No, no, I wasn't. Uh, I was skateboarding and I was doing all these like individual sports. Mm-hmm. Skateboarding was uh, – it appealed to me much more you know I played soccer and I did a few of these things and I tried that and I didn't feel like I fit in and probably like most kids now I look back and I'm like you know nobody really feels like they fit in in high school but they I don't, don't they, know that know. yeah in high school I I didn't feel like I fit in and you know I found other things to do and found other friends not that I was antisocial, I wasn't I had friends and we just were doing different things um but we were definitely like kind of the outsiders the freaks one of the things that you touched on was being Mormon I already felt like an outsider I kind of thought and believed different things and I was doing different things like oh I don't drink all these people are getting wasted oh and in like kind of this jock mentality that was very popular in my high school and I'm sure it is in most high schools sure. they're all, you know let's keggers Friday mm-hmm. night football game woo that's why just taking a train to the city and going to the nightclub and buying records like that was just so much cooler to me and that was kind of my escape but I think being different, part of that was being mormon um and being this devout kid who believed in this thing that was different than what these kids were believing in.
0: Did you go through a phase where you kind of told your parents, well, I don't know if I believe and or were you always was your faith always really strong?
1: Um, you know you you remember things there's this nice sheen and polish on them you know kind of yes. I think the reality is is sure. I, I went through times of questioning things. Of course, all, all kids do. Rebelling, I don't know. Um, my mom would be like, "Yes, he rebelled." I, you know, I was shaving my head and wearing makeup and a kilt to to, to school and doing. Did you weird go to church? Things, yeah, I went I, to. But the thing is, I was always kind of like, "Did you wear I a kilt think to church?" Something, not to church. So you would no, be
0: respectful know. and yes, honor the dress code. I would. Yes, right. so I
1: was very respectful. I. I have a lot of respect for my parents. And even as a kid, I respect, I was like, these are good people. I always knew and understood that and respected them. And I think that was my first inclination. Like, wow, they really believe this. There's something here. I need to, to discover if this is true or not for myself. And, you know, I went through that whole thing. And, yeah, there were times of rebellion and me stepping away and doing whatever. But, I mean, just generally speaking, yeah, sure, I was a pretty good kid. And, yeah, you know, I listened to my parents. And Were they know, strict? You know, at the time, I thought they were, but now that I've heard different stories from <laughs> my friends and what they're doing, I'm like, oh, they were actually pretty cool. I mean, the fact that I was just kicking the train into the city at 15 years old, I didn't even drive. I mean, my daughter's 13. I'm like, wait, what? You're doing what? I you know, know. It's pretty crazy. But it's a different time. You know, at 15, yeah, I was cruising in the city and cruising around and as – long as I was home by 1 a.m., it was cool. And a lot of times I snuck in at home. And it was, the big thing in my family was you had to wake my parents up when you got home. You had to be like – they wanted to know you sure. were home. Sure, so and I'd it's pre-cell phones. The, yeah, yeah, cell phones, no way to communicate There were whatever. phone booths. I could be dead in the gutter. They wouldn't right. know until the next morning. Until you woke them. Yeah. Um, I'm not dead. <laughs> I'm not dead. I'm alive. I made it back. But, you know, I'd come in and like kind of – even if I came home at 2.30 or 3 in the morning, which many times I did – but they would just ask me, what time is it? And I'm like, I don't know. I can't see your clock. I don't know. I, don't I know.
0: think it's 11. I'm early.
1: Yeah, it's fine. Everything's good. Go back to sleep. Because they would just kind of like, you know, open an eye and be like, all right, you're home. Great. Fond memories growing up in really... Chicago was a, was a good thing.
0: Did your mom work or was she at home when you were growing up?
1: She was at home, but kind of working on the side. <laughs> she she was very busy. She She helped my dad. Um, With uh, finances, just doing the books, keeping track of the books, and then she also she loves skiing so much. She worked at the local ski shop because we had so many kids and ski equipment so expensive. Right? But she's like, if I work at the ski shop ten hours a week, I'll get the twenty percent discount. Totally. I am on it. So she was always like picking up time at the ski shop there next to the house. Um, Good for her. Yeah. So she was she was pretty busy, but I mean, she managed five kids. It, you know, it's funny. I think back on it, and it seems so effortless at the time. I mean, it wasn't. And I've asked her many questions since then, like, "How did you do this? Like, when did you lose it? Would yeah. you go in the
0: bathroom and close the door?" And yeah,
1: how? Tell me more of those. Stories. Right. Because, like, for us, it was like we all rainbows and so unicorns. Sweet. Dinner's and ready. She was. The, yeah, yeah. That's it. Now it's we have help. Naomi and I. We've got three kids, not even five, and we've got all these people around us helping us. and when, Still, sometimes I feel like I'm suffocating. I'm drowning. You're like, oh, ah. my you know?
0: God. I've Yeah.
1: But I'm barely around. I know. <laughs> like, I know. how do you do this, Naomi? So. I
0: think that's harder. I think there is something when you're not in a particular groove, it is kind of more
1: intense when you come home. We talk a lot about this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's something to that for sure. You've experienced it. You know, I'm gone for two weeks and I come back and I'm like, hey, I'm home for three, four days. Naomi's like, you know what? You should, probably should have just stayed out <laughs> like, <laughs> And so you could just come down like for a whole you – know, Yeah. Because I come Either home
0: Either be and, here or don't be
1: yeah. here. Yeah, Because then the kids just it's, – it's like they're so excited you're home and they're acting up and they're pitting the two of us against each other because all of a sudden there's not one person to play. There's two and look, we can <laughs> – change the situation. Look, We've Mommy and Daddy are fighting, side. so
0: we could do whatever we want. Yeah. They're not even noticing. So yeah.
1: that's always an interesting thing, coming home. But, um, you know, it takes a second to recalibrate. But really, these last few years, they've been a little bit easier.
0: Because the kids are older? Or- We're getting a
1: little bit older. My oldest is 13 now, and she she's more helpful. I'm not touring as much as I did in the past. I mean, mm-hmm. honestly, when, when things first started to take off... It was, and I joke about this. I've never actually said this. I've said this amongst friends. It was like literally this. these phone calls happen. I'm ovulating. Come home and get on the plane if you want to start a family. I mean, I was gone so much. I, I just, I can't believe, looking back, and I can't believe Naomi's still with me. I mean, that's, that's why I say she really is the hero of my story because um, the fact that she just put up with that for so long uh, for me to um, – you know, kind of realize my dream and, and, and try and live this out.
0: And it's not the kind of dream that once it's realized, then you're home. The dream right. is to continue this dream right. which takes you into this other world a lot of the time. So right. it's not like, okay, on November fifth, once we make the deadline and the company We're fine. right, then I, I can come have home the assistant for the next go 10 and years. Right, like yeah. there's yeah. no I know, there's no um avatar of right. you that can kind of or is there? That's another show. That would be... <laughs> <laughs> Just going backwards for a moment. I know your Mormon mission was to Japan. And I think the mission is so incredible, that time in a young person's life where you're still finding yourself at that age. And yet there's this expectation that you can successfully kind of download to others this idea of a religion and, yeah. or a way of life. and yes. religion.
1: And, beliefs all of it yeah. so
0: i imagine you weren't fluent in japanese yet
1: no i didn't know any so
0: japanese. T- can you just tell like you're like okay i'm going to japan this sounds amazing and then suddenly you're like click the seatbelt on you're on a plane did you know any of the other people on the plane with you it's
1: very scary so what happens is you they have missionary training centers there there are a few around the world i don't know how many um but the one here in america is in utah of course Uh, So you fly there and they kind of give you, they give you a crash course in in Japanese and you're there for about seven, eight weeks. So you get like a very kind of fundamental learning of Japanese. Like, okay, cool. This is how it works. (laughs) You know, subject, object, verb, whatever. And uh, I was with uh, nine other guys that were all going to the same place, Tokyo, Japan. Um, and we were there, and we were there in that same two year stint. Um, we all got called to the same place, but we all went to different places in Tokyo. You know, we saw each other from time to time once we were there. You know, they have apartments set up, be out there and proselyte and teach these people or help the members or do whatever's needed, really. Sure. I mean, we do service projects, we teach people. In Japan, I spent one day a week, we would have English lessons. To anyone who was interested. So to like, give
0: back in that yeah, way. Yeah, yeah,
1: community, we gave blood all the time. You know, if there was any, uh, a lot of these times there's, um, we're getting sidetracked. Anyway, let me no, go back to this. So we great. get into this missionary training yeah. center. You get a crash course in Japanese. And you also spend a fair amount of time just talking about the religion and testifying and going through these, like, moments of, okay, when you teach people, this is the appropriate way to teach them. This is the way we're doing it. And they kind of lay, like, because, okay. I've spoken to many friends about being a Mormon. I grew up in a Jewish community, so I was I was comfortable and
0: explaining explaining yourself. myself yeah.
1: and hey, this is what I believe and this is what I do. And I didn't have a lot of trouble with that, but maybe some people who grew up around a bunch of Mormons did anyway, but they gave us a uh, an easy way like, okay, this is kind of how we lay it out, which was great because it's like an organized system of like, oh, okay, here you can sit down and talk to people this way and that was great. So then after two months of that, yeah, then it's click with the seatbelt (laughs) fly to Tokyo. Yeah. Nervous and excited and, um, I mean, I'm going to a different country and a culture that I know very little about.
0: Had you already been a DJ in Utah before you went to Japan? Had you started to find your place in that world?
1: Okay. Okay. So let's
0: Let's try to reconcile these two
1: things here. Um, So in high school, listen, I'm... A little older, so we used to actually buy records. Mm-hmm. Records were that was one of the formats. I, I didn't ever like cassettes because they're so small and like you couldn't see the artwork, like that just wasn't like well, you, sexy, to hold right? it, you, you had, had to hold, hold it, pull the yet. whole thing open, yeah. read the lyrics, and sure. the whole deal. So, I was one of these guys that liked buying vinyl. So, back in the 80s, you know, vinyl was kind of dying out back then, but I still bought vinyl. And uh, when dance music was kind of having this explosion in Chicago, I was buying all these records. And I wasn't a DJ per se and I wasn't trying to earn money or whatever. But I had a couple friends that had like a setup because this setup's quite expensive. Two turntables, a mixer, a microphone. Sure. This is like, I mean, you have to mow a lot of lawns. to, to, to <laughs> Throw uh, a lot of
0: newspapers on yeah, Mr. Brown's exactly. front step. Yeah. So,
1: uh, you know, so I didn't have the money to buy that. But I had friends. I actually remember the first time I played on a setup. I was like, I stole this. I still set up, so we're all like, "What?" We all drove over to his house, we're all playing on the stolen DJ rig, whatever, and that seemed completely okay.
0: Well, it was a great rig. I was like,
1: uh, we'll, we'll "I'm gonna practice here for an hour, and no then I'm judgment. out of here." Yeah. <laughs> and then like, really rubbing your, I can't your touch it.
0: Fingerprints, <laughs> like, off the thing. Do you know where he stole it from? I have no idea. All right, doesn't matter. We won't name his name, yeah. but Charlie, give it back.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he did. Yes. In my mind, that's how yes. the story goes. Yes. In- that sheen on yes. the past. Totally,
0: yes. totally. And you were always home by one. Yeah. I interview a lot of people who had a passion. And obviously, in your case, there was this amazing interest and enthusiasm about buying vinyl.
1: Right. You obviously, house music didn't exist when you were younger. When I went into high school, that's when I discovered house music. Right. And I was buying these records, not to overemphasize Chicago, but... People are always like, you know, because it's a big deal in my bio, like Chicago, this, Chicago, that. And I'm like, look, the reason I put that in there and it's such a part of my story is because that's where house music started. Yeah,
0: those clubs were forming. That was kind the deal. Of-
1: that's when that whole, this whole thing happened there. It's like you can't talk about hippies and not talk about Hate ashbury in San Francisco. You have to talk about house music in Chicago. And I was just this participant that was experiencing this first wave and kind of this cultural boom that was happening. And it was affecting many places, New York, London. It was a different thing. It was like fringe cultures um, that really kind of loved the music. Um, When you
0: went to clubs, was it white and black and mixed races or was it more white? Gay, straight,
1: white, black. It was just forward-thinking people. It was fringe kids for sure. It was the people that didn't feel accepted. And I think that's why it was such a warm place for me. I was like, man, I love the music. The people are great. No one's judging me that I'm not drinking or that I'm not doing this. Everyone's just having a good time and celebrating life. I'm like, this is my spot. I don't need to be hanging out in Northbrook anymore. I'm in the city. So I was in Chicago as much as I could be after that. But all this kind of stemmed from, did I do it before my mission? And you know, here, there, whatever, I had a couple crates of records. I... I never took any of this seriously. I mean, honestly, even. It was a fun hobby. It was just a fun hobby. And yeah. I, I think I liked that because I'm one of these guys that if I set a goal, then I got to be like really serious and get that. I'm like, oh, well just, it'll be there. I'm not really serious about it. It'll just be there. Also, know, when you say it out loud, fail, yeah, you know? no, it's
0: totally embarrassing if you tell someone you want to do something and then yeah. it doesn't happen. Right. Like, it's the worst.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so I was just like, oh, yeah. I don't know. I'm. Doing this? Oh, yeah, I have that on the side. Oh, yeah, there's that music thing. Sure. Mm-hmm. Whatever. We'll see what happens. With when that. you went to college,
0: did you have a major? Did you have, were you going to join your dad in his office? Like, what um, were you thinking you huh. would
1: do? No, I was never going to join my dad in his office.
0: Maybe the ski shop
1: with <laughs> your like, mom. Yeah, I was much more into that idea, I'm sure. What was I going to do? I don't know. I was just feeling it out. My, my parents, one of the cool things that they did, they're just like, go out there and learn and do as much as you can. You know, my dad, when I was in high school, was like, listen, you got to play all these sports and do all these clubs and all this stuff is free and you can mm-hmm. do whatever you want. And you have this time on your hands. The rest of your life's not going to be like that. Go experience as much as you can. That was his way of kind of saying, like, you shouldn't be dating a girl. Seriously. <laughs> you know, he's like, go out and do all this other stuff. I you want the you rest of your distracted. life distracted. Yeah. Yeah. And but I get what he's saying. Now, you know, I'm looking at my kids thinking like, it's it's good that I did all these different things, played lacrosse, was on the swim team, did you know, played soccer, did all the, you know, debate club acting. I was really into acting for a while. And, you know, and I tried all these things and they were fun and yeah. entertained me and kept me busy, you know.
0: So is the mission after college?
1: It is. I went to one year of school. Right. So I and went out you... to Utah, which the idea there was I'm growing up in Chicago. I knew like a handful of Mormons. I'm like,
0: I'm going to uh, my Mormon Central. Went, yeah, Mormon, yeah. You
1: know, I just wanted to see, for me, I was really intrigued. And I had been to Utah many times, but to go to a school where I could meet other Mormon kids that, because the few Mormons that I knew, oh, this guy liked to program computers or this person was into uh, They were not know, what you music. were into. I'm in. like, yeah, these are way, <laughs> This is <laughs> these are not my people. They are my people. Yeah. Like, cool, we share this common, you know, sure. belief, but- wow, I don't understand you at all. Yeah. <laughs> so when I went to Utah, when I went to school, it was just like, whoa. It was a whole, it was, def- it was very eye-opening, and I made some lifelong friends there that first year in the dorms, that first semester. Some of these guys that I met there were, they're still my friends to this day, and uh, it was just cool. I found people not only that I shared the same faith with, but just Looked Interest. at life. Yes, yeah, similar yeah. interests and looked at life similarly. And, um, you know, and they were from different, one guy's from Northern California, another guy was from Orlando, you know, and just made some really great friends. And it was cool for me to just kind of hang out with some other Mormons. Because I think when you're young, sometimes when you think something differently, it's easy to feel ashamed or feel, you know, feel ridiculed. Even though I, I didn't feel that, nobody really put me in a box. and Well, was we like do that, that to
0: ourselves, don't we? Yeah, I yeah. mean, it's
1: just that, The pressure that you feel.
0: The only thing I can compare it to is I went to Israel for like a gap year after high school. Right. And I just had this realization. I was walking around Tel Aviv or something. I was like, I mean, not to a person, but I was like, everybody's Jewish. And it's not like everyone was religious. Far from it. Like, right, people right. who grew up in Israel are like, we're here. Right. Like, you can't get we any get closer yeah. to the temple. Like, right. we're good. Like, we yeah. don't have to fast on Yom Kippur, right? right. right. And I'm like, no, how are you not eating matzah? It's Passover. They're like, dude. <laughs> They're like,
1: <laughs> like, we got it. <laughs> we got it.
0: We are matzah. But there was something. It was a very subtle thing where, and and by the way, at the end of the day, I don't want to live where everyone's the same either. Right. Either way. But there was something kind of interesting about just for a moment I was elated to not have to explain anything to anybody. It was but kind of a very that's simple it. thing.
1: Then you get what I'm saying. Yeah. So I went to Utah, and I was just like, Ooh, I mm-hmm. can breathe. Yeah. I'm like, I didn't have to be on guard. I didn't have to explain everything. I was like, why yeah. are you doing that? I was like, all right, wow, cool. I can just live and meet these people. Um, so I did a year there, uh, one on my mission to Tokyo. Came back from Japan. Came back two years later. I loved my mission. I love the Japanese people. Going to Tokyo was, I I was just there a few weeks ago. I can't tell you how much I love Tokyo. It is the most amazing city. And the people were so kind and gracious and I was doing missionary work. But I came home and I actually moved to New York. Before Um,
0: going back to college. I went
1: back for a semester. And I went up Does to Naomi one of these boards. Does Naomi enter the picture yet? Not not yet? Or not yet? All right, a I'll hold on, on. I'll hold on. And I went up to one of these boards, and there's like a Japanese company was coming to campus to interview people that were fluent Japanese. And I'm like, "Whoa, well, I'm fluent Japanese. I should." This sounds interesting, so I went and interviewed with them. Takeyanko is the name of the company, and they're, um, you know, they're like a global tourism company that's based in Japan. And uh, I moved out here shortly after I got the job. Moved out here, lived on. they they had a company apartment on roosevelt island i spent like i don't know five hours i was working like 20 hour days it was very new york and then
0: taking that tram like that Taking the
1: tram. actually they had i would drive around the city i drove a tour like a 17 passenger tour van like one of those big kind of vans not i don't know they were around in the 90s i don't know if they have them anymore one of those like chevy vans sure and i would pick Japanese people up at the airport. I'd drive them into their hotel. I'd drop them off. I would explain the city to them. And then they had optional tours. So we did the picking up and dropping off was kind of in the morning and at the night. And then during the day, they'd have these optional tours, tours of downtown, tours of midtown. Or people could just pay me to accompany them and translate stuff. So I was taking all these Japanese tourists around New York City. So you know New York really well. You would think that. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Um... I'm going to ask the question again. Do you know New York really
1: well? I came in here and they trained me for like all of like 10 hours or Mm -hmm. something like that. And I had been to New York a couple of times. I actually came here with my choir and performed um, at a few different venues here. This is in high school. So, you know, I'd been to New York a couple of times or whatever, but these guys are like, this is that building, this is that. And I'm like, okay. So I'm getting like hundred and fifty years of history in like ten hours. I'm like, I'm gonna retain about one percent of this. But I learned more and more as I was here. But mainly it was just making sure that these people got from point A to point B safely. Yes. And that they had somebody they could speak to. That was kind of my job. And it was a fun gig and I got to know New York better. And more importantly, I got to New York you know the New York club scene at that time.
0: Where were the clubs at the time? Um Do you want to tell me in Japanese? No <laughs>
1: <laughs> Okay. Nihongo yo. Okay. Nyongodemo um. Nice. Yeah, Limelight was a big deal back then, and was it Club USA here in Midtown, was kind of cracking at the moment, too. That was brand new. And Um, were there DJs at the time that you were like, whoa? That was just kind of beginning, because back then it was more about the club and the doorman and kind of the scene around that club and what they were putting out there, that vibe. This club is about that. Okay, I like that. I'm going to hang out there. They play house music on Fridays. All right, Fridays, that's my jam. But anyway, I was just going around, and it was kind of the birth of that time, because really the whole rave thing kicked off, and that was very much Europe. So they kind of took house music, flipped it, made it their thing, added ecstasy in there, yeah. synthesized it a bunch, right. homogenized it a bit. Started
0: the party at midnight. Or yes, yeah. and, and then and
1: went out into fields and nowhere, and tens of thousands of people were gathering, and then it, then that kind of got imported back in. We bought that version of what we sold them back here in the U.S. And that's when things really started getting exciting in the scene. Then that's when all these like DJ characters started showing up. And it was the late 90s and and early 2000s where, you know, here in America we started accepting it. And it was starting to happen outside of the cities or in like, you know, smaller cities.
0: To go back to Grandma Evelyn. Yep. Was it? When did you start writing your observations of the life you were living down?
1: Listen, I had kept a journal pretty frequently throughout most of my life. And the thing is, when I, when I was writing it, I knew. I'm like, in 20 years, I'm going to hate myself when I'm reading this. Why am I writing this down? It feels so good. I got to get it It keeps you out. humble,
0: Ryan. Yes, I it know. It keeps you humble. Okay. okay, so there's always a journal. It we went to, like, Japan with you and...
1: Oh, yeah. In yeah. Japan, I think it was, like, the first eight or nine months, I actually made a goal. I'm like, I will write my journal every single day. I'm going to do it daily. Yeah. Then in about eight months, I remember looking back, like, a month before, I'm like, okay, I'm starting to write the same thing down every day. It's cool. Why don't I just write it when I feel inclined to write this and I've got something worth writing? Yeah. So I slowed down a little bit, and um but those are those are fun passages to read. And I knew Graham was a good writer, and I was like, okay, maybe some of that flowed down into me, hopefully. yeah. Um, But I never took it seriously. uh, And then I really got into making music and early studio gear, and it was very rudimentary. It was basically drums and bass. I mean, that's what early disco was. It was quite simple. It was about the groove. And certainly that's what early dance music was, man. I listened to the stuff that I was listening to when I first came up, and it is so simple now. I can see why people are like, you must be high to enjoy this. I'm like, no, I actually really like it. I love the minimal aspect to it. I yeah. love that it's just this so funky and cool and minimal. I, I appreciated that. It didn't bother me. Um, that's the peanut butter and jelly in me, I guess. I don't know. I love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Whatever. I'm simple like that. Anyway, the music spoke to me and I started making records and I'd been doing that for, I don't know, a handful of years, three, four years. Wasn't having much success. Wasn't, and I knew that. I wasn't making anything great. and I, I knew that. I wasn't, under, I wasn't delusional. Um, but I was kind of learning my craft at the time. And then I had a studio session with a band. They wanted me to remix one of their songs. And I was hanging out with these guys. And one of them, who was an engineer in the session... You know, we finished the song together and he just kind of was like, man, you're making really cool stuff. And dance music, this electronic music is interesting. He was fascinated by what I was doing and hung out with me. His name is Finn Bjornsson. You know, we sat and talked and talked and kind of what we i have boiled that conversation down to because it was a, a moment where I changed a pivot, like a, a big moment for me was we kind of discovered together that it was like, look. You can produce a song this way or that way. It can be pop. It can be down tempo. It can be chill. It can be ambient. I mean, there's all these sub-genres in music, right? It could be classical, whatever it could be. But he's like, really, what people connect to are lyrics and the melody, saying something, sharing something of yourself. And the he was connective
0: a connective br- tissue he, for yeah, each that, of us.
1: And he was a brilliant songwriter. Yeah. I looked up to this guy. I'd only hung out with him for like a week in the city. I'm like, man, this dude's freaking is smart. Is
0: this in New York or back in Utah?
1: This is in Utah. Okay. You know I was living at? in San Francisco at the time, and I had flown okay. back to uh, have this session with this band. And it's funny, because I had, was already drawn to that. Like, when I was growing up, I was a huge fan of Morrissey. You know, the Smiths were like... Oh, yeah. Morrissey, to me, was on this pedestal. I was like, this dude is so brilliant, and his words are just... They make me happy. They make me sad. They speak to me. I love right. This I was is like, my story. Someone's I was like, this writing this. This dude my story. is the most brilliant songwriter. And to this day I'm like, this guy is the most amazing songwriter. Uh, and Robert Smith of the Cure, um, another songwriter, you know, when they come to town, I go and see them if I can. And it's funny that music spoke to me at the time, it still does. You know, this new wave, indie coming from Europe, whatever, different place sounded different. But really, what stands the test of time and what I kind of discovered that day is I was sitting there talking to Finn that It's the songs. Why get hung up? You know, I was like house music ride or die because I lived through this explosion in Chicago and that was part of my identity, house music. That's, you know, that was part of me. And I was like, he's right. I need to start putting my words to music. I need to sharpen the pencil and put it on paper and come up with some ideas. and, 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 And really that's when my career changed. I mean, things didn't take off immediately, but the idea was... Putting the song first. And that was a big change from anything that was happening. No, it wouldn't. There was wasn't one guy. Was it You, It's Me?
0: Was that the first song that you wrote that hit?
1: Yes. And when I say hit, it was in a very small way. But for me, it was like this atomic bomb going off. Yeah. I mean, it, it definitely changed my life. And it changed kind of the trajectory of my career. Um, and it was a moment. And I was like, Wow. This is it. Okay, cool. I can do this. This is going to connect with people. I can make a living doing this. You know, when I said make a living, I'm like, I'll be able to pay my rent, pay my mortgage. I never thought, whatever, staying in some penthouse in New York and flying around in private jets and whatever, caviar dreams. That None of that. I was like, I'll be able to take care of myself. And that was the Midwesterner. Cool. I can enough. earn a wage. I can make a living doing this. I can take care of my wife and children. And really, that's all I was concerned with, really. That's it.
0: This is such a big jump. But it has been covered extensively in lots of different interviews about the ride from going to San Francisco, Ohm Records, supporting you, your first song coming out. And since then, you've had all kinds of incredible singers do the the lyrics for things you've written that have joined you and, and remixed Incredibly popular artists. You've remixed Disney, like Disney songs that we all know and love, like from The Lion King to. Right, like from Shaka Khan to, you know. Disney, right? Like it's a wide berth of exploration of your artistry. And obviously, there are very few people on the planet doing this kind of electronic dance music. In such a huge way where you're filling stadiums and there's a a relationship that you have with your fans, which is could only happen in the world of social media. Like you're also coming up at a time where you can talk directly to people or make millions of people feel like you're speaking directly to them, which is a very rare thing. You're doing so much more than paying your bills. You are making an extraordinary living. That's kind of documented within a few million, I'm sure, of the truth, because I don't know where Forbes gets its information. It's not getting your actual PIN number for your bank account to tell you this. But (laughs) even if they're a little bit wrong, it's pretty impressive. It's insane. yet... You know, you talked a lot about the compromises of sort of being on the road so much and having this family life, but your work demands that. Like, I know that you're a super philanthropic, generous person, and that must be, for me, the greatest joy of ever earning something is that I can give most of it back. Like, you take what you need for your survival, and maybe a little more. You don't have to be a martyr about it. That's right. So before we go, I'm really curious, and I hope you'll come back, and I hope Naomi will come back with you because it would be so much fun.
1: I want to hear that Yeah,
0: that's the interview I want (laughs) to do, and we can even do it while you're still here. But what are the things that you give to? Where are you putting
1: and giving back to? What are you passionate about? I try to give back as much as possible. I always speak to the youth. When I was here, just on this trip, I did a show at Brooklyn Tech High School, Uh, And it was an initiative through uh, Chegg and Truth. Truth is the anti-smoking, the tobacco, anti-tobacco company. I try and do these things as often as possible. That's... uh, Listen,
0: the most obvious is every time you bring a beautiful young artist who's undiscovered onto one of your songs, you are launching something extraordinary for them. So... I I do a lot of that. But I mean,
1: but I I, and I think those are the obvious things, you know. I try and give back as much as possible, just like what you said, because I have what I need and I'm fine. (laughs) And like how can I go out there and participate and help other people? There's also I'm an ambassador for OUR, which uh, is a group, a small group of guys that try they're trying successfully doing stopping uh human trafficking uh mm. sex trafficking and this guy has been raising millions of dollars and going out and personally stopping it himself um he used to work for the government and there was too much red tape so he got out and uh started doing it on his own and going out there and literally putting his life on the line raising money and 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 stopping and saving it lives. and I and, and I mean, it's hard for me to keep up. And it's something that Naomi made me aware of. And she's like, we need to be involved with this. This is incredible what this guy's done. She saw a documentary. You know, they've saved a lot of kids out there. So that's another initiative that I've been just out there trying to help them as much as possible. Oh, you are great, great group of people.
0: Ryan Radden, I am so happy that I got this time with you and to hear
1: a small
0: part of your story. and. You're an extraordinary artist. I felt really lucky to be at your show the other night and to really see the connection that happens between you and the people coming to see you. It's a really beautiful thing.
1: And thank you, you it give is. a lot of thank joy.
0: You. A lot of joy. So thank you.
1: No, thank you. Thanks for having me. Wow.
0: Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast, and on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hanger Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision.